Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast by Jim Power and Chris Johns that looks at the major political, economic, and financial developments around the world from a uniquely Anglo-Irish perspective. All our podcasts can be found at our Substack site and all good podcast platforms. Afternoon, Jim. Great to be back for the latest edition of The Other Hand podcast. As usual, we have a packed agenda, and because it involves a lot of numbers, or at least some of it involves a lot of numbers, I'm going to ask you to do a lot of the talking, you being the the numbers guy, as many of our listeners have identified. But what we're going to talk about today is a, a whole raft of economic data and other economic stuff that's come out today in recent days. It really is a week for economic news. We've had the EU Commission's winter forecast, and I know that you want to talk about that in general and Ireland in particular. Both you and I want to talk about Brexit, and in particular something that a member of the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee, Jonathan Haskell, has been saying about that, and the reaction, the very predictable reaction that that's got from the Brexiteers. We've had data out from the Eurozone on growth and the labour market, We've also had similar data out from the UK on jobs and earnings. Today, we've had US inflation data. And within that, there seems to be something for everybody in the audience. And we're both going to talk about that. The behavior of markets in response to that inflation data and all of that other economic news has been absolutely fascinating. If we've got time, there's something that we rarely talk about on this podcast, which is Japan. As you have pointed out to me many times, it is the world's third largest economy and therefore does deserve our attention. We won't have time, but there is lots going on, of course, sadly, in Ukraine. And there's some stuff of particular interest to me that I just want to mention, because I think other people would be interested in it too. And again, this will be something for a future podcast. There's some interesting stuff coming out around the world about property. We've had German data that suggests that both their commercial and residential property markets are falling quite rapidly. 
uh, the residential market in Germany, according to one data release, has fallen at the fastest rate or the most in 20 years. There's been an interesting result of uh, building a lot of property in New Zealand and the impact that's had on rents. And I think this has resonance for the debate that you and I often have about what the effect of increasing property supply would have on house prices and rents. In New Zealand, it's had sod all effect on rents, which is in keeping with my priors, as we say. And there's other stuff coming out as well that suggests A, globally, property is struggling, um, and B, that I think the interest rate effect is probably the biggest of all. It's not the only effect. The economic slowdown is important. And if we get a chance, I want to talk about that. But Jim, why don't you start uh, wherever you want in that agenda, really? But I think the first thing I mentioned was the EU's EU Commission's winter forecast. I found the Commission's forecast interesting. The headline was EU economy set to avoid recession, but headwinds persist. And the Commission has basically revised up its growth forecast for GDP in the euro area to 0.9%. It was talking about 0.3% late last year. So that's an increase of or 0.6%, okay, in an upward direction. For 2024, GDP growth at 1.5% remains unchanged. Inflation forecast to average 5.6% this year. 2.5% next year. So a significant decline in inflation and certainly an average rate moving comfortably back towards the European Central Bank's official inflation target of 2% or slightly lower. But the, I guess the point of interest to this commission forecast is that it is now becoming part of a trend. We've spoken in the last few weeks about the IMF's first upward revision to growth prospects since um, for the last couple of years. The factors that the European Commission is attributing to the upgrading of growth forecasts is, number one, gas prices have fallen significantly. Secondly, labour markets are still very strong. And indeed, every piece of economic data we're getting in most countries at the moment relating to labour market performance suggests that employment growth is still strong, that unemployment rates are still very low and wage pressures are building. And of course, there is the dilemma for central bankers, or I guess the motivation for central bankers actually in terms of increasing interest rates. And the third factor is basically an improvement in general economic sentiment. However, it does point out, you know, significant challenges that I think we all know about. Core inflation is still too high. And when I say core inflation, I mean headline inflation excluding volatile components like food and energy, particularly energy in the current environment. A second challenge is the tightening of monetary policy we've seen to date, the full economic effect of which has not been anywhere close to being felt yet. And of course, further interest rate tightening to come in most jurisdictions. They talk about the potential for a weakening of consumer spending as inflation outpaces nominal wage growth, you know, leading to declining real incomes and that impacting negatively on consumer expenditure. And of course, the other challenge then is the the broad-based one of the general ec- external environment, the uncertainty that is out there and the Ukraine war 
obviously features prominently in that regard. In relation to Ireland, GDP growth in 2023 is forecast at 4.9% and 4.1% in 2024. Inflation forecast to average 4.4% this year, 2.5% next year. In the context of Ireland, it alludes to you know, the positive forces of the strong labour market. And as you know, we have currently have a record level of employment at 2.55 million. We have an unemployment rate of 4.4%. High personal savings approaching 150 billion sitting in bank deposit accounts at the moment. And of course, the ongoing strong export performance driven heavily by the multinational sector and more particularly by the chemical and pharmaceutical component of that. The risks it outlines for Ireland are ones we all know and love. One is the impact of the Northern Ireland Protocol. I happen to believe that the Commission is um, exaggerating the significance of that, but it's in there as a risk. And the other uncertainty or risk is the multinational performance and particularly the global technology pressures that we're seeing. But generally, you know, this is a pretty upbeat assessment from the European Commission. And as I say, the real significance is that this is now becoming part of a trend. This morning, Eurostat, the European Statistical Agency, published Eurozone quarter four GDP growth. It was the second estimate unchanged. The Eurozone economy expanded by 0.1% in the quarter. Okay, so compared to 0.3% the previous quarter. So in a sense, we did see a significant slowdown in the Eurozone economy in the final quarter of last year, but recession was avoided. The Eurozone economy is now, well, at the end of last year was 2.4% above its pre-COVID level. And on a year-on-year basis in the final quarter, it grew by 1.9%. So a weakish, but still relatively solid performance by the eurozone economy and i guess the important piece really is that you know it it has surprised mightily on the upside as is the case with most global economies at the moment and that's something we have obviously spoken a lot about um, since december in fact employment and this is i suppose one of the Strange phenomena over the last year, you know, as the global economy slowed against the background of the Ukraine war, rising cost of living pressures, rising interest rates, etc. Labour markets have remained incredibly tight. Eurozone employment grew by 0.4% during the fourth quarter. That labour market performance is strong. And as I say, that is something that is common to most labour markets around the world at the moment. Indeed, in the UK this morning, we got quarter four employment increased by 74,000, which was well above expectations. And the reports suggest that the demand for labour is still strong, that job vacancies continue to trend in a downward direction. A UK unemployment rate of 3.7%. Did you mean upward direction? Job vacancies? Job, job vacancies are continuing to fall. Oh, they're falling? They're falling, okay. yeah, right. okay. and that, that's indicative of strong demand for labour still, you know, in a pretty tight labour market, unemployment rate of 3.7%. And of course, against this backdrop, you know, wage growth is picking up. And one of the measures that the Bank of England looks at is the 
private sector wage growth, excluding bonuses. And that's growing at an annual rate of 7.3% at the moment. I think the story is in the UK and indeed in Europe, but particularly the UK, and this is the same in the United States, you know, labour markets are still incredibly strong and resilient and tight and upward pressure on wages. And of course, that is more than anything else, I think at this stage, what is driving central bankers, the Federal Reserve is going to increase further. The European Central Bank very definitely going to increase further. While there was a sense after the Bank of England's last interest rate meeting, you know, 4% could represent the top of the cycle for the base rate. You know, a lot of the comment following today's labour market report, for example, is that the Bank of England may have to tighten further to make sure that labour market pressures don't start to feed into inflation. So it's... Yeah, there's there's two themes there that I find very interesting, particularly in a UK context. But the global theme is that growth hasn't cratered in the way that we thought it might in the wake of all these interest rate rises. If you take a step back from all of this and say that all of the world's central banks are going to go from zero or negative interest rates to something very positive, say 4% in the case of the United States, the most important market, almost in a heartbeat, very quickly, raising by three quarters of a percentage point at a time. If you'd said that in advance, you'd have said a couple of things. One is they're taking a big risk with the real economy. That will really hurt the real economy. And secondly, the financial sector will get destroyed by this because the financial sector just can't take those kinds of higher interest rates. Neither of those forecasts, if you had made them at the time, have come to pass, at least not yet. So that, that's really interesting. And as you say, economic growth is proving to be surprisingly resilient. Now, that means to me that the fall in inflation that we've seen, which has been largely about commodity and energy prices in particular coming off the top, uh, that's going to prove to be quite sticky from here on in. And I think that was consistent with the numbers that we saw today from the United States, for instance. Getting inflation down to these sorts of levels was quite easy. The next leg might be a lot harder. So that, to me, suggests, as you said, Jim, higher interest rates. It strikes me that there's one country that clearly does have a wage price inflation problem, and that's the UK. That that figure of 7% on private sector wages is, would scare the Bank of England witless, I suspect, if you thought it was going to be sustained. It seems that, yet again, the UK has got the worst of all possible worlds when it comes to economics, and that it's got a very sluggish economy, one of the most sluggish in Europe, and possibly the worst inflation problem, that it really has leaked out into the private sector wage bargaining process. And that means higher interest rates. So if that all adds up to higher interest rates everywhere or higher for longer or just higher, whatever it is that you think, the market, the equity market and the bond market and interest rate market's obsession with interest rates is going to continue. And it's quite clear to me that the markets really don't know what to make of all of this because they're going up and down, down and up all the time. Uh, As you said earlier, European equity markets are trending up. I suspect that's because they are pleased that we're not yet, at least in European recession, they're focusing on that real economic news. But if we go back to thinking about interest rates, I would have thought these markets are all looking very vulnerable, Jim. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think they are because the, the US inflation number today, you mentioned that was a month on a monthly increase of 0.5% in January. And the headline rate uh, didn't fall as much as expected to 6.4%. That 0.5% increase during the month was the highest in three months. 
So that does is indicative or suggestive of a slowdown in the rate of improvement. It is interesting in the context of what I know you want to talk about either today or in the next podcast about rental markets, but the cost of shelter, which is basically rent up by 0.7%. And I think it, it contributed nearly half the inflation we saw during the month um, in, a weighted, in a weighted sense. So, you know, housing everywhere is behaving very bizarrely. Well, maybe not bizarrely, but, you know, we see significant upward pressure on house prices. Well, particularly rents, actually, rather than house prices, because a lot of markets, you mentioned Germany, the UK is the same. Um, House prices are actually in decline at the moment. In, In terms of what all of this means for equity markets, I mean, bond yields are creeping up. I don't look at bond yields as often as I probably should, But um, I I noticed uh, today that the 10-year bond yield in Ireland is at 2.8%, Germany 2.36%. And if you consider two years ago, that German rate was minus 0.7 or thereabouts. You know, we've seen a remarkable upward adjustment to bond yields, US 10-year at 3.7% and the UK 10-year at 3.45%. That's more than 100 basis points above Germany. And, uh, you know, I I think you could jump to the conclusion there that this is another area where the UK's non-participation in the European Union is actually impacting UK financial markets. The cost of borrowing for the UK government is significantly higher than in Germany, for example. So against that sort of backdrop of rising bond yields, you know, ongoing concern about interest rate tightening and so on, you'd have to think that, you know, despite the resilience of equity markets in recent times, that volatility and risk remains the order of the day for the moment. Yeah, if you think about it, though, with inflation still in mid to high single digits everywhere and bond yields of two point something percent, they're still very negative. Relative. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so, and so yeah. if that were to change, if the market was to think about positive real bond yields, sorry, I meant to say negative in real terms, then I think that both bond markets and therefore equity markets and everything else that depends on bond yields, one of the reasons why you rightly talk about bond yields is that ultimately all financial assets depend on long-term interest rates, depend on bond yields. And if they're going to go up again, and the environment in which we're describing, I think, suggests that they might, then I think we would need to be very, very cautious about things that depend on long-term interest rates, including housing. Because as you and I have discussed many, many times, Jim, there are lots of influences on housing. You would emphasize supply of housing much more than I would. I, for all sorts of reasons, which I'll go into on another podcast, would regard housing as more like a financial asset than any other kind of asset and is just as vulnerable to interest rates and bond deals as, say, equity markets. And I think that they look very exposed now. But of course, bond deals and housing supply are not the only two things that drive house prices. The other thing, one other factor is just for the sake of argument, call it the state of your economy. Germany's housing and commercial property market is struggling because of higher interest rates and a very weak economy. Ireland's housing market is not struggling. It's off the top in terms of rate of increase, I think it's probably fair to say. But because your economy is still booming, I think that's a big difference between your housing market in Ireland and the housing market in Germany. And that accounts for at least part of of the difference, why Irish house prices aren't actually falling. 
Yeah, Chris, I might point out that in the fourth quarter of last year, the German economy actually contracted by 0.2%, was one of the few European economies to actually experience negative growth. And I, I suppose that does feed into the house price performance in that country. I think so. I think that with, with the many drivers, but bond yields def is certainly up there in terms of my list of usual suspects. We, we've often talked about housing supply and how important or unimportant it is to prices. Neither of us thinks it's unimportant. It's the weight on supply that I think is the difference between us. And I would just cite there's some evidence emerging from New Zealand of all places where they have built a lot of housing in recent times. And some studies have been released about what effect that had on very high New Zealand rents. And you can probably guess why I've raised this, Jim. What do you think the effect of building lots of houses in New Zealand has had on New Zealand rents? Bugger all. Um, Bugger all. Okay. Yeah. Um, so and, and, one data point. One, it doesn't prove anything, but it is, it is consistent with the story that I see, tell. Chris, that does fly in the face of um, orthodoxy. I mean, daft.ie yesterday published its rental report for Ireland showing uh, rents, I think, up by 14.7% on the year. Ronan Lyons, the economist in Trinity College, who is the author of the DAF.ie report, um, was quoted in media as talking about the need to you know, ramp up the supply of rental properties to bring rents back under control, that that is the biggest problem. So are, are you suggesting, based on what you see in New Zealand particularly, um, and I know you see the same thing happening in Vancouver, for example, that despite a massive increase in supply, you know, rents are still continuing to rise. What's going on here? Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Vancouver, you mentioned, is a market that, for all sorts of strange reasons, that I know quite well. And you've only got to go to Vancouver to see how much property they have built in recent years. It's just everywhere. High-rise luxury condos, high-rise not-so-luxury condos. They've just built on every available plot of land that they can find in that really very fine city. And it's had sweet FA effect on prices and rents. It is still a booming property market to the point where they've had to do things like restrict the availability of housing to foreign purchasers. Things like that have had to be introduced. And I think that speaks to the demand side for housing. If you, th if you think that demand for housing is just there, uh, it could be that you're not actually on uh, in any kind of housing equilibrium, that it is, it is a market in fundamental dis disequilibrium. And there's all that kind of discussion. So I think the honest answer is we don't really know what's going on. We mustn't, I, I think we must be very humble in terms of our ability to forecast what's going to happen next. But I repeat what I've, also, what I've said on this podcast and 
debated with you many times, I think it would be a very good thing to increase the supply of housing in Ireland. Absolutely, no quibble with that whatsoever. I think it needs to be done. It is a must do. But I think that you need to be careful about your expectations, manage your expectations about what that increased supply of housing would do to house prices and rents. It would depend on a lot of other things. If you increase the supply of housing at a time when interest rates are going through the roof, as indeed they might well do over the course of the next year, then I think you would get a big fall in prices. But the big driver wouldn't be the supply. It would be the rise in interest rates. Sometimes it's difficult to disentangle the effects of the various things that are going on. If the Irish economy just went into recession as a result of a global recession and you increase supply of housing, undoubtedly you get lower house prices and lower rents. And so it all depends. And I, th I think we just need to be very careful about these bland assertions about, oh, build more houses and rents will come right back down again. I'm not so sure. They, they should come down a bit, but just be careful about how much you expect them to come down. And that, that would lead you to believe that interest rates really is the most important factor determining house prices. Well, if you, if, if you then start to try and imagine an economic thought experiment about what impact do interest rates have on demand curves, do they mean that, what do they do to the shape? Do they shift them? Do you move up and down them? Or does the demand curve shift? There's all that kind of very basic economic analysis that you need to do. And you need to be able to disentangle all the multiple effects on housing. The simple fact is, is that we know that if you take a market like Vancouver, that um, the moment anything comes for sale, people buy it and they buy it from all over the world. And if you're operating in a global property market, which certainly major cities are global property markets, think about London, for example, um, foreign buying of, of London property, property market has kept prices there going off on their own independent journey from the rest of the country for ages. And Dublin, I think, to a, to a lesser extent, is still is subject to those sorts of influences. If you're a country with a high degree of immigration, you're going to get people wanting to, you know, who have to live somewhere and they're going to buy or rent houses almost at any price. It's only until the price of housing stops the immigration, if you like, that you will start to see these effects diminish. It's complicated. And I just think that... It, it is complicated, Chris, but I'm, I want to pin you on this. I mean... IBEC came out a couple of weeks back with a report on the property market and, you know, for the first time, well, not for the first time, but really outlining strongly the importance of housing as a source of national economic competitiveness and that high rents and high house prices now represent one of the biggest threats to Ireland's future economic prosperity. And I, you can see the logic there for the IDA trying to attract um, employment into the country, for example, the availability and cost of housing is obviously very, very important. But is there no solution? Yeah, there's a solution. In my world, you just get interest rates and bond yields up. But Jim, I actually, when we've had this debate offline, I've sent you some data about where Ireland's housing, house prices and rents stack up in an international context, which speaks mm. precisely to that point that you raised there about IBEC and competitiveness. And the data that I've sent you, it may be yeah. crap data, but, but it's from the OECD, says that Ireland, if you, if you want to say that house prices and rents are a measure of competitiveness, we're not out of whack with other leading industrial countries, are we? No, we're not actually. No, no. And a lot of people in Ireland find that very difficult to believe, I know, mm. but, that, but that is what the data says. Indeed, indeed it is, yeah, absolutely. You, you were surprised by that data, weren't you? Uh, I was actually, yeah, I, I certainly was. Mm. Um, 
So I think that we need to be very careful about about the complexity of something like this, about how much we actually understand, how much we don't understand. We need to be humble about this, but never lose sight of the fact that we're both in agreement. One thing we do agree with is that we need to build more. And it's the consequences for prices and rents that where we disagree. The need, That doesn't mean I, I think... No, we, we don't necessarily disagree, Chris. Um, I'm questioning it uh, because, mm. you know, it does fly in the face of some economic orthodoxy at least. So um, I, I guess what it all does for me is just um, confuses me even further about the solutions to the uh, the housing challenges that we're facing. And right. I suspect... Let me, let, let me give you the, yeah. the economic orthodoxy, which, which is almost neoclassical going back to 19th century economics, which is the economics of land, which is what we're talking about here. And I don't know if you remember, there used to be taxes on houses that you either were taxed on the rent that you gained from a house or you were taxed, believe it or not, on something called imputed rent. The tax yeah. authorities said that if you live in a house, if you own a house, you are saving money by not paying rents. At this point, most non-economists' heads explode and say, what an absolute load of bollocks. This is just doesn't make any sense at all. But to an economist, to a properly trained economist, this makes abundant sense. And if you, if you view housing as a thing that either yields you rent because you rent it out or yields you rent because you're not paying rent, that's a source of imputed income that should be taxed according to classical taxation theory. And if housing is that kind of an asset, financial asset, that one way or another yields you some rents, then it should be taxed as a financial asset. And that's an appeal to get the taxation of property sorted out properly. And that's why you should have land value taxes sorted out properly in all jurisdictions, including and especially Ireland and the UK. The second thing that flows from that is that you start thinking about housing as a financial asset, uh, not unlike, say, for example, the stock market. And if you think about the stock market, when interest rates go up, the stock market goes down. Not every time, not all the time, and not always in the same way. It's complicated. But generally speaking, stock market types, analysts will tell you, when interest rates and bond yields go up, equity prices, stock markets go down. And I think exactly the same processes, mm. by analogy, similarly apply for these assets that can be thought of as financial assets called houses and apartments, residential dwellings. That's the mindset that I'm trying to encourage myself anyway, to, to, to try and think about this rather than old-fashioned supply and demand for housing and drawing crude curves. I think we need to think about it in terms of discounted cash flows to use financial jargon. It's not the whole picture. I'm not suggesting replacing one very simple model with another equally simplistic model. All I'm saying is, is that these things um, often, when we, when we suggest doing something with, with respect to policy, just be careful about the kind of outcomes that you expect. Which brings me all the way back to everything else that we've always said, is that housing is very complicated, it isn't amenable to simple solutions, and that beware political parties that pretend that they have the secret source to solve the problem. The mark of any populist party is always to pretend that complexity can be solved by me, I feel your pain, and I know how to resolve your pain, in this case, your house price problem. It just isn't so. Uh, I can all all I can say is, Chris, people out there listening needn't worry about this because Sinn Fein will solve the housing problem. Thank God for so that. So we're Jim. told. Okay, I'm, it's marvelous. I'm, I'm, Chris, I'm delighted for, for for you in Ireland, Jim. Maybe maybe yeah. when that happens, I'll buy a holiday home in West Cork. 
Uh, can I move on, Chris, to um, the UK and Brexit? Uh, Jonathan Haskell, who's an external member of the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee, was citing research in the Bank of England yesterday. He basically said that investment had been stopped in its tracks in 1960. In, excuse me, in 2016, uh, the hit to business investment has led to a drop in productivity worth around 1.3% of GDP since 2016. And if you quantify that, that's a cost of 29 billion to the British economy. And he said that Britain was an extreme outlier when it comes to the slowdown seen in productivity. Okay. Okay. And he he went on talking about the um, economic damage it had done. And of course, the reaction from the pro-Brexiteers was very, very predictable. Um, we've seen David Frost, who was the UK's chief negotiator on Brexit with the European Union. He urged Rishi Shunak's government to fully and enthusiastically embrace the advantages of Brexit. And he warned of a secret establishment plot to undermine the agreement. And he specifically referred to the secret cross-party gathering at Ditchley Park in Oxfordshire in recent weeks, where he believes a whole load of people who wanted to get rid of Brexit met um, in a very conspir- conspiratorial well, it wasn't setting. It, it wasn't so secret, Jim, because it was the front page of the Observer. On I Sunday. know it was. I know it was. But uh, he he described it as a secret cross-party gathering. Okay, so he he believed it was secret. But I guess you should never let the facts get in the way of a good story. But um, here we have another piece of damning evidence about the impact of Brexit. What's going to be done? Nothing. It, the evidence is piling up. And as you say, we've got Lord David Frost, to give him his full full title, he was given a peerage by his mate, Boris Johnson, has come out with these conspiracy-style arguments. We, we often see this. Conspiracy theories are present throughout all of human history. One of the reasons why we call the medieval times the Dark Ages is that they were dominated by all sorts of conspiracy theories. Superstition and belief in all kinds of weird and wonderful things characterizes uh, us as human beings. It's a fascinating topic in its own right, but it has lots of contemporary resonance because, of course, there are so many conspiracy theories around. The White House basement is full of um, paedophile Democrats who are running things. The moon landings were faked. The list of conspiracy theories, old and new, is a very long one, but it's the new ones that are are bothering me because there are so many of them around and there are so many people willing to believe them. Just why people are willing to suspend their thinking and critical faculties for these fact-free or based on lies, obvious lies, not based on anything resembling data or facts, is, is, a, is an excursion into human psychology. Uh, the, the research suggests that the type of people who are vulnerable to conspiracy theorists are angry, disappointed, insecure, anxious types. They may be one or all of those different personality types who uh, essentially hate the the chaos that their, their lives are, that the, the uncertainties that are present in all of our lives, and they become control freaks. They want to exert some kind of control over their lives. And so that kicks off in all sorts of different ways. One of the reasons why coercive control is really an important topic in many people's lives at the moment is because uh, people who have these psychological traits start becoming coercive controllers. Another thing that people do when they're trying to impose some sort of control on their chaotic lives is to start believing that they know the truth 
and the truth is out there somewhere and that there is a uh, it's the wizard it's the story of the wizard of oz that we want to believe there is a yellow brick road that goes to somewhere called oz where there is a man a con, you know a wizard who is controlling everything and this wizard takes many forms in all of these conspiracies george soros pops up a lot the globalist conspiracy which is a favorite of many of these people is pure anti-semitism the great reset is a phrase that you often see used and it is something that populist politicians always fall back on and this is what lord frost is going to do i'll stop to, i could talk and write about conspiracy theories and the history of them and how they're affecting us at the moment all day but i'll stop there and frost is doing this usual thing somebody who has really damaged his country by doing something really, really stupid, which is what populists always do, then starts blaming uh, these weird unnamed actors behind the stage, these secret cabals, this globalist conspiracy. There's always somebody to, be, to blame. In this particular case, Lord Frost is blaming just about everybody in the UK at the moment because the vast majority of people in the UK do actually acknowledge, at least when polled, that Brexit is going very, very badly and it was a bad idea. But because there are enough David Frosts out there, particularly in the Conservative Party, who believe all this weird stuff, it's classic what happened after Marxist and communist revolutions in so many countries. The reason why they failed was that they were never implemented either properly or fully, all that kind of stuff. And um, it's, it's about belief, fact-free belief. And that we hear these phrases, if only they'd implemented Brexit properly, none of this would be happening. Of course, it's all bullshit. It's all nonsense. But it's classic in the sense that it always happens. This stab in the back myth that Brexit has been stabbed in the back by people who betrayed it. I mean, that's how Hitler came to power after the end of the First World War. And there are many similar instances throughout history where similar things have happened. It's very sinister. It's very dangerous. Um, but there are sufficient numbers of people in the ruling Conservative Party in the UK who believe that Brexit has been betrayed and that anything to do with Europe, they have a visceral hatred of anything to do with Europe, uh, it, it really, really is very, very worrying. So that's a long-winded answer to your question, Jim. What's going to be done about this? I nothing. Nothing at all. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite amazing here to witness and observe what the right-wing protesters are actually saying at the moment and how they're behaving. Um, it's, it's sinister stuff. It's unbelievable stuff. And um, unfortunately, uh, there's an increasing number of people out there who are prepared to embrace this. So it's something that does need to be nipped in the bud, but I just don't think the political system of ca is capable of doing that. Chris, if I could just wrap up, um, time is up, um, by alluding to what's happening in Japan at the moment. Um, the economy expanded by 0.2% in the final quarter. So technically, it too avoided recession. The Japanese economy last year grew by just 1.1%, which would have been one of the lowest growth rates in the OECD and certainly in the G7. A slightly smaller economy now than in the period 2017 to 2019. So for the world's third largest economy, we have just this ongoing story of basically economic stagnation. And I think that that is a clear demonstration of the impact that an aging population and the lack of inward migration the economic impact that that has. And I think it's important for all of those people who are out there protesting and complaining about immigration and the impact of immigration. Um, immigration is good for economic activity. It's good for productivity. 
um, full stop if properly handled, of course, because you need to make sure that if you do have immigration, that there is a proper integration process that the immigrants need to be brought into society, into the economy as quickly as possible. And that, of course, I think is where the failure often occurs. There's no attempt made to have full integration. Um, but Japan is just a case study in how such a closed economy can have such an impact. And I know um, Japan is a wealthy economy. It's still the world's third largest economy. Uh, but there is this ongoing lack of economic dynamism. Yeah, the two things I'd say about that, Jim, is that the Japan story is a little bit better when you look at GDP on a per capita basis. Yeah. And that's because their population falling is falling. Falling population, yeah. So they, so a stagnant economy is being shared out amongst fewer people. And yes. That's that's their story. Um, it's not one I'd recommend for anybody. I'm not, I don't, I'm not even sure we could pull it off if we were in that situation ourselves. But I would second your remarks. And I think that it's worthy of a, a deeper look in a, in a future podcast about a the facts around immigration and we live in an era thanks to all of these conspiracy theories that i mentioned earlier where facts don't matter but i think people like us it really must keep hammering away at the facts even if we can change one person's mind i think that would be a result but the facts about immigration are as you stated them they are good for the economy and all the different aspects of the economy that you mentioned i would assert they're also good socially and of course they are, yeah. thing, it's a good thing from a social perspective so uh, th- th- I think we need, to, we need to explore that. And we also we need to explore just why, and, and perhaps go into it a little bit more detail than I was able to on this pod, about why people do believe this kind of stuff, that the um, anti-immigrants, that the right-wing uh, conspiracy theorists are positing. But let's leave that to another day. Thanks a Super. lot. Super. Yeah, good to talk, Chris. Cheers, buddy. Bye. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated.